Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 24. You'll know that last week we looked at and we finished the uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. And we now have examined the eight characteristics laid out in the book of Proverbs of a foolish man. And then I brought you back around and uh, we talked about the nine characteristics of a wise man. And we did that through one of the greatest ways in the Bible for you to study the Bible. And there's a three or four impacting ways the, the, the Bible will o- open itself up to you. And one of the ways is the way we looked at this is by contrast. And uh, laying out what is good up aside alongside of what is not good. Looking at a positive thing up against a negative thing and then making the contrast between the two. In this case, it was a fool contrasted to a wise man. And I, I showed you two key words about a fool. Uh, the word deviseth and the word thoughts. And this shows us how that all sin will start within the imagination that we have, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, and then manifests itself, uh, as we, I showed you in Ezekiel chapter 8, that was going on with the nation of Israel at that time. A fool will live his life in a world of imagination, a world that is not real, not reality. Uh, it's, what, it's the hallmark of a fool. A fool is someone who does not understand the circumstances around them, and they live their life in a world that just does not exist. Uh, he surrounds himself with all the things of life uh, and the world, and he shuts out the reality of life. Uh, and all that it really is. And that's what they do. A wise man, on the other hand, or by contrast, will see, and more importantly, he'll understand life. He'll understand it from a biblical perspective, and he'll see the reality of it. He'll understand what is real versus what is not real. I remember one time reading back in Daniel, and it really struck me, and I never forgot it, how that Daniel... You know, he went before the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he did all these great things that, uh, that astounded the king. And the king thought to himself, well, that's not a big deal. So he brings in all his magicians. And the magicians counterfeit what Daniel did. But the end result is they couldn't do everything that Daniel did because all they had was an illusion of truth. That wasn't real. Magicians, there was no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as someone who can make this disappear or levitate this person off the ground. Or That is all an illusion. And back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, when he went up against Daniel, who was operating under the Bible and the Bible principles, the best that Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, a picture of the world, the best they could offer was an illusion. Something that looked like it was true, but up against contrasting to what Daniel had, it wasn't true. And a wise man, he'll see that the world for a Christian is very hostile. It's very unforgiving. The world will destroy you in every way. And a wise man or a wise woman who understands the Bible will know that there's absolutely no value in it. A wise man will be under no illusion that there's any value in a life without the blessings of God and the favor of God and the hand of God in your life. Through God's wisdom, through his time in the Word of God or her time studying, they've gotten understanding now. 
and they understand what's going on all around them. They see it for what it is, not as the illusion of the world tries to present it to be. Uh, They will use the principles of the Word of God to stay ahead of the world system because he's totally, uh, through the Word of God, now he has the understanding to see it. There's a great illustration of this found in in Numbers chapter 9. I think it starts around verse 15 and it runs to the end of the chapter. If I remember right, I think it's verse 23. You know, the Bible is filled with stories that illustrate great principles for us. And there are stories that when we read them, actually they happened in history and they happened to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But they're profound in their practical impact in my life. And here's a great example of that. Back in Numbers chapter 9, you have the story of the nation of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness of sin. Now, the wilderness of sin was after they came out of Egypt, they went into this desert. And they wandered there for 40 years. We know that. And it was called the wilderness of sin. There was nothing in that desert place. There was nothing in that wilderness that sustained them. There was no water. There was no food. And God supernaturally brought the, what they needed. He gave them the water out of the rock. He brought the quail uh, and the manna from heaven that they had substance of food to eat. That is such a beautiful picture of your life and my life. If you're saved this morning, you're living in the wilderness of sin. This world has nothing for you. You may think through the illusion of it all that the world will satisfy you. You will think that the things that you do, the parties you go to, the stuff that you associate yourself with, really will have the answers to make you happy. That's an illusion. And what happens is, is that you're going to find out, if you get God's wisdom and understanding, that the only thing that's going to sustain you and me in this wilderness of sin is what God gives us supernaturally. What God brings and gives us through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit of God, through this church through the men and women that you, you line up with, to be, uh, to be partners with, and, and to help each other uh, through life. But in our story back here, they didn't know where they were going. They were in a very hostile world, and they had a direction that God wanted them to go, much like you and me. But they didn't know where to go. They didn't know when to stop, when to start. They had decisions they had to make about their journey in life, just like you and I have decisions about our journeys in life. So what did God do? God gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. That cloud and that pillar was right over the tabernacle. That tabernacle was the source of their relationship with God. That fire and that cloud is a picture of two aspects of God's Word. We talk about the fear of the Lord. That cloud and the fire explains what that is. The cloud represents the second coming of Christ because when He comes back, He's coming back in a cloud. The fire represents the judgment of God because God came down and He judges through the fire, not only at the judgment seat of Christ, but also at the second coming of Christ. So those two elements, the fire and the cloud, represented for them the very essence of what God was. And it was right over the tabernacle. And without the tabernacle, they had no relationship with God. Without your Bible in your hand today, you will have no relationship with God. That cloud and that fire is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God leading and guiding you everywhere through life. When it stayed over the tabernacle and didn't move, they stayed put. 
Nobody come out and said, well, the cloud's still there last night or this morning and the fire's there. Looks like it's going to be there all day. But I'm, in, I'm anxious to get going. Let's just pick up that tabernacle and go. That's not what they did. They waited till God moved and then they followed the moving of the Holy Spirit of God through the fire and the cloud. You know what gets us in trouble? When we don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God for Him to lead us, and when He's telling us to stay because we don't have the principles, we want to move and do something when God wants us to stay put. When they did finally move and that cloud or the fire went, they followed it. For 40 years, for 40 years, they followed that cloud uh, by day and the fire by night. And it led them everywhere that God wanted them to go and finally got them to the promised land. Now the promised land, many times in most preachers' mindset, because of their limited understanding, they think the promised land is heaven. And I understand, you know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be, you know, grapes the size of basketballs and all that stuff, I guess. Anyway, but the bottom line is this. The promised land doesn't represent heaven. The promised land represents the place in your Christian life where you finally cross over Jordan, and now you live by the promises of God. You still have the enemies in your life. You still have the adversity in your life. But you now live above the circumstances and you've crossed over from the wilderness of sin into the land of promise where you live now simply by the promises that God gave you. And that cloud led them by day and the fire led them by night for 40 years. The God leading them. Proverbs 3 verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. That cloud and that fire it told him when to go. It told him when not to go. It told him where to go. And it told him not where to go. God's leading of your life and my life through the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God through our wilderness of sin. There's stories like that throughout the whole Bible. And that's a great illustration and a great picture of what we have been talking about of a fool who will follow his, his conscience, follow his heart, follow his basic instincts. And a wise man who knows now that in my heart it's desperately wicked. And it's against everything that God wants. I have to replace that with God's heart and then follow the leading by the cloud by day and the fire by night, the Word of God. Now today... I want to give you another great principle of life. And it will be in itself one of the greatest witness tools. You remember last week when I talked about the nine characteristics of a wise man? One of them was that, uh, uh, that he won souls. The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. That was last week. What I want to talk about today, you probably wouldn't think of it like this, but when you get a little understanding, a little time under your belt as a child of God, uh, you'll see that this will be a witness uh, to the world uh, that your life really has changed. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what, uh, it talks about the fact that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, that old things are passed away, all things have become new. What I'm going to talk about today is probably one of the greatest tools that God can use in your life and my life to actually show the people out there that you are who you say you are. That you are really a new creature in Christ Jesus and truly the old things are passed away. And we want to look today at 
Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. It says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Jeffrey, I want to ask you to stand up and ask God's blessing on the service today, my friend. The child of God with the wisdom and understanding of God will never get caught off guard. There's very few times in your life that you will get blindsided by stuff. They will know that adversity, trials, and temptation are just the normal part of the Christian life. There's two great men in the Bible that you can study that illustrate this, and they really go together. If you want to understand your, your walk with God and your relationship with God, then you want to study the Apostle John. If you want to study the ministry that God has given you and what God has called you to do, then you're going to study the life of Paul. Those two men will give you a, a blending of both aspects of the Christian life. And they're the greatest examples of where you and I should be. And we will understand that that adversity and trials and temptations are part of our walk with God. I tried to get this across to the kids at camp, uh, and I hope I succeeded because, as you know, um, when I said last week when we came back from camp, uh, the devil tries to undo everything that we did. We need to pray for a little gal in St. Louis that came to camp. She overdosed on prescription drugs this last week, and she's in the hospital uh, we don't know how she's going to come out of it, uh, but we need to pray for her. And I'm telling you, we, 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 we think that, you know, it's great when you're at camp. I mean, you got counselors, you don't go outside, there's, there's guard dogs and rifle towers everywhere that'll shoot you if you cross over the white line. I mean, you're, you're safe there. But boy, the night you have to come out on Thursday night and go back to this world. I bet you there was some kids that went home 10 minutes and the phone rang and somebody wanted them to go out and do this or do that. I bet it wasn't a day that almost everybody was faced with the adversity. And, and a lot of times, they're good kids and they came back and they really want to serve God. They're not looking to come back and get into the world. They really, in their hearts and their minds, they want to make a difference this time. I'm telling you right now, kids, and I'm telling moms and dads in your own Christian life, adversity coming to you in life it's just part of the Christian life. Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you was given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's not enough that you just believe on Him. After you believe on Him, now you enter into a Christian life that's going to have suffering with it. Adversity will come into all of our lives. Philippians 3.10 says, And I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Oh, we like the power of his resurrection. We like the fact of knowing him, but we don't care much for the fellowship of his suffering. Yet I want to tell you, it's not just the knowing him and the power that you get when you get saved that conforms you unto his death. It's also being in fellowship with the suffering that he went through. God's people don't want to hear that. When the charismatic movement was born around 1900, 
And you're going to find that it starts with a, uh, a woman out in Los Angeles, California, at the Azula Street Mission. Her name was Amy McPherson Simpson. And she started the charismatic movement. And if you're a charismatic and you listen to this, I'm just going to say before we go any farther, you're a fool. You're a fool to be in an organization or a religion, a cult, that was one, started by a woman, and two, didn't start till 1900. You see, the problem you got is you got 1900 years of church history where nobody ever believed what you believed. And suddenly a woman who had ran off with the song leader, left her husband, she comes up with this idea of the charismatic movement today. A little bit later on, it moves into the Full Gospel Business Association. It gets picked up in Bethel uh, Bible Church there in Topeka, Kansas. And now, uh, voila, what you have. We talked about, a, we talked about a, a, the, a couple of months ago, or maybe a month ago, we talked about the fallacy of the, of the uh, Episcopalian Church how that they go through this great pomp and circumstance, but when you peel back the layers, the, the Episcopal Church, Church of England, started because Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, who was Catholic, and the Pope wouldn't give it to him, so he left the Catholic Church, started his own church, so he could marry the love of his life. That's how your church started. You know how my church started? My Savior dying on the cross for me. That's a contrast for you. You know how charismatic movement started? Oh, I know, you're so spiritual, I get it. I get it. Uh, you know how it started? It started because some woman got the vision and understand it. And for 1,900 years, nobody even remotely believed what you believed. But you're okay with that. It's because you're a fool. And I say that with love and grace in Jesus' name. It's just that simple. You know, uh, it, it brought with it the idea when it came into being. It brought in the idea that if something good happens to you, it's of God. And if something bad happens to you, it's of the devil. And that's how they live their world. Well, if something bad happens to me, that's of the devil. And if something good happens to you, well, then that's of God. And uh, I, there was a book out a while back, and I, I, I read it, I read it, and it, uh, for what it was worth. And it said, uh, and in some cases, it's, it's a blessing to read 600 words a minute because you can get through it faster and you don't have to mess with it. But anyway, the book was called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the guy that wrote it, wrote it like he really believed what he was saying. He actually wrote it like he had some kind of authority behind what he was saying. He was, he was passionate about it. And the first thing that came to my mind, if you're a wise man, will be Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. According to the Bible, there isn't good things that happen to people that's God and bad things that happen to the devil. The Bible says all things work together for good. God will allow adversity to come into your life. But we're so far removed from the Bible today that we just don't, we don't get that. And our verse says here, if we feign the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now, I want to say this. It's the adversity in our lives that God will take and strengthen you. Nobody ever got strong. Nobody ever got healthy. Nobody ever became a big-time wrestler by eating marshmallows, Big Macs, and Ho-Hos. <laughs> Laying on the couch, playing your video games, and watching television. Nobody became a world. Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was at his peak, was Mr. Universe five times running. 
I beat him out the last time. But other than that, <laughs> you ought to see this guy's body. It was incredible. He did, you know why he got there? He got there by eating things like wheat germ. He got there by eating stuff that make a billy goat puke. He got there by eating stuff that, uh, that uh, you know, you go to these oriental shops and who knows what you're getting. And you mix this stuff up and you eat it. It builds muscle and builds protein. And he looked like a million dollars. But he didn't get there because he was laying around all day long on a couch watching his favorite soap operas and eating Twinkies and all the things that, that he goes along with life. No, no, no. He had the, I think the t-shirt says, no pain, no gain. He had to go through some adversity of building that body the way he had it. And I'm telling you, the thing that's missing in God's people's lives today is adversity. You contrast Christianity from 500 to 1500 and the adversity that they went through for the Word of God, and then you contrast it to 1900 to 2018 of what we have today. We got a bunch of marshmallow Christians that couldn't stand for anything. And our suffering and our adversity and our trials and all that we suffer with, the outcome will simply be based on our relationship with the Word of God. And we have today where God's people can't, they can't face adversity. They've been brainwashed that anything that happens, you come home from work and, and you know, your, your wife says, oh, you look terrible, what happened? Oh, the computers were down and we all had to think, oh, what a terrible day it was. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's where we're at today. The adversity. When you go through the book of Romans and you look at Paul's life, you ought to see the things that he listed, being beaten and whipped and shipwrecked and all the things. And you know what he said? He said they were light afflictions. They were compared to the suffering of Christ on the cross. You know what's wrong with you and me? We don't have any comparison of our suffering. We don't have any comparison of what he did on the cross and he died and he suffered for us. So you get a hangnail and you think you're going through the tribulation period. Let me give you another great principle in the Old Testament. And this one's really a good one. Found it, not that they're not all good. Found in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28. This is something that'll help you. My father, the Lord Melchizedek, he used to have a saying. You know, people get, you get excited about good things and then you get down in the dumps about bad things. You know, you have the valley, the valleys of life and the mountain peaks of life. Uh, you know, I've seen all seen this, you know, you, you got to, they say, you know, you, mountaintop to mountaintop, mountaintop being spiritually on top of things, you got to go through the valley to get to the next mountaintop. Ooh. <laughs> you know what Mel used to say? He says, I'm not up and I'm down. I just stay even. I just stay even. You know how he could say that? Places like this. Let me read it for you. It's incredible. This will help some of you. Verse 28, 1 Kings 20. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver you this great multitude into thy hand. You shall know that I am the Lord. You know what he's saying? He said, God is God of the valleys and God is God of the mountaintops. He's the same God. You don't have to think like, well, I'm going through a valley of life. Where's God? I'll tell you, well, he's right there. You missed him. 
The same God that's on the mountain peak when everything is fine is the same God that brings you through the adversity when everything is not fine. That's an incredible principle. God will be there with you through the mountaintops, the hilltops of life, and the valleys of life. Over in Egypt, they have a place where all the kings and the pharaohs were buried. It's called the Valley of the Kings. And this is where all the tombs are of all the kings that were kings of Egypt. It's a burial place for all of them. And they're all dead. We know that Egypt's a type of the world. You see, when you're an unshaved man, then you have to go through the Valley of the Kings with everybody else who's dead. But when you become a child of God and you get God's wisdom and understanding, you realize that our God, who is the king, will take us through the valley of the shadow of death and he'll never die and they're never going to die. And you don't have to go through the dead valley of the king because you go through the valley with the king. When I build you, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, I, I don't... I don't mass-produce Christians. I know most churches do. I know most Bible colleges. We used to have a standard joke that every kid that came out of Bible college, this was back in the 80s and the 90s, every kid that came out of Bible college, they looked the same. They had a three-piece gray suit, white shirt, and a red tie. And I actually believed that if they had a little assembly line, that they dressed them as they went out the last year of their thing, spray-painted them, you know, and put them out. They used to have singing groups that go around. And they'd want to come to churches. And obviously the reason that they want to go to churches is they want to recruit young people like you to uh, come to their college. It's a, it's, a, it's a promotional thing. And it's all it can. I mean, you'll have these nice, sharp, clean-cut men and women, young kids, like, you know, college kids, young kids, really looking good. And they get up there and they sing really well. But it's all fake. They'll up there, and they'll, they'll do probably every week they'll do a church, maybe two churches a week. And it's the same format. They'll stand up there, and they'll sing. They'll all look up there and hold the mic. They'll look up like they're looking at God, like God is looking at them. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll give a little theatrics, and when they want to change mood, they'll change mics, and they'll look this way now. <laughs> when a guy comes up and sings, and he's going he's gonna to sing, and he wants to be on the spot, he gets that relaxed look. He steps up, puts his hand in his pocket, and he sings to you. <laughs> kind of bent over just like, kind of like Bubba, just like this a little bit, you know. Uh, it, it's incredible. Uh, they'll tell, and they'll have a testimony, and a girl will come up, and she'll start to give her testimony, and it'll be how she got saved, and how she, you know, this or that, and then she'll cry. The next week she does it, she cries at the same spot. They got a guy in the back who drives the bus and holds up a sign, cry now. <laughs> it's all canned. And, and they, they just turn them out on an assembly line. Little guys, little gals that know how to dress, know how to talk, know how to sing, but they couldn't stand up to adversity if their life depended on it. I'm not interested in building Christians that way. When I build you, I build you like they used to build cars back in the 1950s. One car at a time. You know, you go in and buy a car now, there's, what, 500 cars on a lot. You find what you want, because they all got the same thing. But back in my day, in the 50s, I remember my dad bought a 1960, his first brand new car was a, 19, was a 1955 Pontiac. My dad was a Pontiac man. 
And he kept that, and then he bought a 1960 Pontiac. And uh, I remember when he went in to buy the 1960 Pontiac, you know, you had to wait back then two months to get your car. You told them what you wanted. They sent it off to Detroit or wherever it was, and for the next two months, they built your car to your specifications. It wasn't like you walked in and just got one fully loaded. Now they, you can walk in and you get one that doesn't have nothing on it. You get one that's got everything on it, or you get some that's got a few things on it. Back then, you could, you could tell them which one. I want white. I want this. I want that. I want, we didn't have air conditioning back then. That was unheard of. And then about eight weeks later, that big old truck, you get a phone call, your car is in. We all be so excited. We all be so excited. We're going to go get the car. And that back then, a 1960 Pontiac looked like the Titanic. It was a boat, man. <laughs> and we get in it, wind the windows down. And I remember, I remember, I remember the guy saying, Bill Willis was his name. I remember Bill Willis. He said, he said now Frank, it was my dad's name. He says, now uh, you drive it and then you let it sit for a while. It probably won't start for about an hour till the engine kind of, it, it, it's got to work its way in. I mean, those were handmade cars. Today, you, it's already got probably 1,000 miles on it when you get it. It's run around all over the place. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying back in the day, when you bought a car, it was put together fitting your needs. That's the way I build Christians. Every one of you have special needs. Every one of you have special gifts. Every one of you have something special to offer. There's no way that I could or any church could ever give you everything that God wanted you to have by just looking at you and mass producing everything for you. You all have special gifts and things that God wants to do with you. And uh, each one of you is different. You have the different gifts and the different needs. My job is to see what they are and then build the specifications to what God made you to be. And I want to build you to be able to stand for adversity. I want to give you a lot of things. I want you to learn the Bible. I want you to be able to understand what's going on in your world. But I'll tell you, one of the major things that I want you to do that is missing today in God's people's life is I want you to be able to stand in adversity. Because it's going to knock you off before you ever get started. Now, doctrinally, all this stuff we're reading here, just so you have a understand, all this stuff that we're reading here is called, in the Bible, Jacob's time of trouble. It's all... All the Jew in the tribulation period. Everything we're talking about today and next week too. And last week too. But inspirationally, where darkly it may be Jacob's time of trouble, inspirationally it's Bob's time of trouble. It's what we are going to go through in adversity. And I want men and women who are tough. You don't find that much today. I want somebody that, that is that when, when the world or Christianity uh, knocks on your door and somebody tries to, the adversity comes, that you're man enough or woman enough to stand up to it. And we've got people in this church that are like that. We've got some men that are incredibly tough. And I want to tell you, we've got some ladies here that are rough as truck drivers that's been going on the road for about 40 years. I mean, you look wonderful, you look beautiful, and you look like the cascading water of a beautiful waterfall. <laughs> But brother, you can nail somebody if you need to. Charles called me yesterday. Hope you don't mind if I tell this story. I don't remember. He, he was someplace and he bumped into a guy who knew me. And the guy said, I don't remember the guy's name. Even when you told me, I didn't remember him. But it was years ago and he was under my ministry, I guess. And now he'd gotten to the place where, as he told Charles, that, uh, you know, he sat under me and, and Ruckman and all that stuff. And now he's got the true light of the word of God 
and how that, uh, that we are the true Israel, the true Jews, and Bob was all wrong, and Brooklyn was all wrong, and uh, you know what, Bob's arrogant, Bob's this, Bob that, and Bob can be a little arrogant at times, but it's part of my charm, just bear with me. And, and, and he's on and on and on, and, you know, and most of God's people, you know what they'd have done? They'd have just said, you yeah. know, well, I, I don't, you know, you know what Charles did? Charles says, let's get him on the phone. Why don't you tell him how arrogant you think he is? Well, I'll tell you what. I guess you got the truth now. Him and Ruckman are wrong. I'll tell you what. I guess you would be okay with coming on Thursday night in our question and answer and putting it out there and let him, let him defend uh, what he taught you all those years, right? Because says, no, I don't really want to do that. No, I guess you don't. <laughs> well, I don't want to really fight about those things. We're not going to fight. We're just going to bury you. We're not going to fight. There's no fight to it. A fight is when it goes for 5, 15, 20 minutes and two people are knocking it out. This will be a one-round knockout, I promise you. And, you know, and, and people like that, they just, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, not because it was me, but for anything. I appreciate somebody that, that you hold somebody accountable. You don't just put your tail between your legs and say, well, I don't like confrontation. I don't like adversity. Well, I don't like confrontation either, and I don't like adversity. But you know what? It's part of your life. And you better be able to stand up to it. Where did my glasses go? Where? Oh. And I'm telling you, I want men and women who are tough. Let me tell you something. If I met somebody and I talked to them and they said and I said they said to me, uh, you know what? I don't believe that anymore and all this stuff and and uh, you're wrong and you're this and you're that and uh, you know what? If you come to why don't you come to Bible study and we got a group of five thousand people there, ten thousand people there, four people there, twenty thousand people and why don't you come over there and we'll hey, I'd be there with bells on, baby. I'd get me an Uber driver, get a tuxedo on, and show up in style, man. I'd be there. Don't you give me that opportunity when I know you're teaching heresy. But I want men and women like that. I want you to be able to stand through adversity. People are going to question what you believe. They're going to make fun of you because of the Bible that you believe. The very Bible that saved you. The baby Bible that puts your family together. That brought your kids back into your family. That very book that God gave you. They're going to make fun of you for having it. And you're just going to put your tail between your legs. Facing adversary and taking a stand to get the job done. And I want men and women who, I want men and women who are running into a burning building when everybody else is running out. When a situation is so volatile and everybody says, I can't deal with this, I'm getting out of here. When they're running out, I want my men and women running in with the book. You know, the real heroes, the 9-11 to me, were the first responders. But I've read story after story after story how I don't know how many hundreds of firemen and policemen lost their lives. Brave heroes. And people were trying to get out. They, they actually said that people were, the only way they could get out was through the stairwells. And people were flooding down the stairwells. And they were in a panic. And they were crying. And they were hurting. And they were trying to get out as fast as they could. And while they were trying to run out, the firemen and the policemen were going up. That's the kind of Christians that I want. That's the kind of Christianity we need to be. 
The real heroes of 9-11 were the first responders. And today the real heroes of Bible-believing Christianity will be the first responders. The ones that will go in when nobody else will. The ones that will take a stand when nobody else will. The one will face adversity when everybody else because their strength is small. Now, nowhere in the Bible is this laid out better than the book of Job. And uh, I want you to turn over to the book of Job for a moment here. And I want to I talk to you for just a few minutes. Our verse says that when, uh, when adversity comes, we'll fail because our strength is small. Now, Job stands in stark contrast to every charismatic that ever, ever lived. The problem is charismatics don't read the Bible, so they would never know Job. They think it probably means job, and it's a place you look to get a job. <laughs> but Job will experience adversity like no other man in the history of the world. You know the very name Job means one persecuted? And Job loses in seven days, or goes through in seven days. He loses everything in two days. But he loses in seven days' time what you and I will never lose in a lifetime. When chapter 1, you begin to read it, it says that he had a very great household. The Bible says that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 she-asses. And all in one fell swoop, he loses his house. He loses, he's got seven sons and three daughters. They're having a, a party at some place and a storm comes in and falls down on them and kills all ten of them. He loses his family. He loses his assets. He loses every part of his wealth. They come and take his servants. Everything that he has, physically speaking, is taken away from him just like that. And you and I may go through some adversity. You may lose a loved one. You may lose, go through financial ruin. You may go through this or that. Nobody on the history of the world will lose in the time frame that he lost what he lost, all that he lost. And if that wasn't enough, we get in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, now he gets a terrible disease. Boils breaking out over his body. Most painful things that you can, you can ever go under. And the Bible says that he's sitting in an ash heap. The ash heap is the remnants of the one house and everything that he had. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you losing everything, getting a terminal disease, and then sitting in the ashes of everything that you had, not only going through what you're going through, but looking around and seeing that everything that you knew in the world has now been taken from you. And the Bible says he's scraping the pus off of his boils with a piece of pottery from his house, probably from, from, from his, the dishes or the, uh, whatever. And that, when you begin to look at this story, you begin to see how that all of this, now I can see what a charismatic would do with that. I can see how a charismatic would take that and how a guy could write a book when you don't understand what you're reading. But I want to tell you something. All this disaster, chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the whole book of Job, it was by design. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, it isn't just the devil involved here. It's God's involved here. Now, if you don't have this marked in your Bible, you know, you know about the law first mentioned. 
the first time you find something in the Bible that's significant, it usually sets the, sets the theme for it. Well, in, in, in uh, Job chapter 1, verse 8, this is the first time you find the word Satan in the Bible. He's been called a lot of things up to now, but he's never been called Satan yet. And God waited to put him in here as Satan. He waited till Job chapter 1, verse 8, to put him in and call him Satan because the word Satan means adversary. And Job, like you and I, is going to go through an adversity with an adversary. And 1 Peter 5, 8 says that your adversary, the devil, going about as a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And what I want you to see is that when your faith and your strength is small and weak, we miss a tremendous opportunity because there'll never, be a, 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 there'll never be an adversity that you go through in your life that'll just be the devil doing it. God will always be involved with it. Now you take Job for, he's a good guy here. He's definitely a good guy. The Bible says that he fears God in chapter 1 and he eschews evil. Eschew is an old English word. It means that he shuns it away. You find that he's offering sacrifices for himself and his kids. And Moses is not even born yet. This is Abraham's time. Uh, There's no requirement for sacrifices. There's no law yet. He has read in the Bible and his relationship with God. He has now known what Abel and Adam did about offering sacrifices. And he's smart enough to put it together. And he said, if it worked for them, it'll work for me. And without any law, without any commandment, without any Old Testament structure... He's offering sacrifices. The Bible says that he's perfect and he's upright. And he experiences adversity on a scale that's unknown to you and me and unparalleled. And yet I want to tell you, and there's a great principle coming here in just a few minutes, so hang on. And yet he has no church. You have a church. In the New Testament, God's program was a church. In the Old Testament, after the law, it was a nation of Israel. He doesn't have either one of those. He has no church. I'll tell you something else. He has no pastor. He can't call this pastor up on the phone and say, I I need your help. I'm struggling with this. He doesn't have a Christian psychologist to go to to help him go through all the trauma of what he's lost. He doesn't have a Christian therapist that he can go to and sit down and lay on the couch and, and, and express his feelings and his moods and, and his, what he's going through. He didn't have any of that. He didn't have any Christian TV. He can't get Joe Olstein. No radio. He doesn't have any support team. He doesn't have a prayer group that he goes to on Sunday morning that he can lay out everything that he's doing. He doesn't even have a hymnal that he can sing the songs. He doesn't have a website that he can get on and listen to sermons. He doesn't, most importantly, he doesn't even have a Bible. He's got a wife. What a great help me she was. Her best advice is, curse God and die. 
And then, the only friends that he seems to have is his three amigos that show up here. And they come up and they start to falsely accuse him. You know, when you're doing right and you're going through something, you know the last thing you need? The last thing you need is Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. To come in and start telling you when you know you're not, what you're going through is because you're not right with God when you know you've done everything that God wants you to do and you're struggling with what you've lost. There's no compassion with these guys. There's no consoling. There's no, there, all it is is sheer, unadulterated, they clobber him. One thing after the other. Hey, you know what? It's hard enough to defend yourself sometimes when you're feeling good. Try it when you really have lost everything and you got this terminal disease that is rocking your body from one end to the other, and then you got to have your sharp focus. It's impossible. Job's in a fix. Job's going through some things. And he has no church, he has no pastor, he has no Christian TV, he has no support team, no prayer group, he has no Bible. But here it comes. All he has is God and his relationship with God. And I want to tell you something. Your relationship with God says it all about you. Sometimes we hide behind the Bible. We hide behind the church. We hide behind how loud we sing. I said loud, not lousy. We hide behind that too. We hide behind getting into a prayer group. We hide behind lots of things as God's people. But I'll tell you what, strip all those things away, take them from you, and at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to get you through the adverse of your life is what you have taken the time to build in your personal relationship with God. You know what? Because God is enough. If that book teaches me anything, it teaches me if I lose it all. If they take my Bible, take my hymn book, throw me in a jail someplace, then I'll never see the light of day. No friend, no nothing. I'm going to tell you, God is enough. There's two aspects of Christianity. There's outwardly what we project to everybody, and there's inwardly our real relationship with God, and many times they don't really line up. And in your life, in my life, God should be enough for us to stay strong and face adversity. You know, there's a number of tests in the Bible that you and I can take, should take. Bible is a great book. The Bible is a textbook on life and everything, but it's also... You, you know, Bible says over there in, in uh, uh, over there in First Corinthians, it says that we are to Second uh, Corinthians thirteen five. It says that we're to examine ourselves, and self examination is really a good thing for a Christian. Now, let me just say this: if you've been in this church for a year or less, I'm not talking to you. I know that many of you come in from places and you're, you're moving right along and you're growing and, and you're doing well. So what I'm about to say, I'm not, not aiming this at you. If you're a visitor here today, I'm not aiming it at you. But if you've been in this church and you've been saved for a long time, say three, four, five, six years, and we all talk about, I've never, I mean, very few people, when you start to talk to them, will tell you, yeah, I don't have a relationship with God. 
Oh, so if you would ask the average Christian, how's your relationship with God? Oh, it's great. It's great. You having a good time? Good, oh, I'm saved. I have a great relationship with God. You know what? That's an illusion. That's somebody that in most cases has never examined themselves. Now, there's a test in the Bible that you can give yourself to see how you're growing spiritually. There's a test you can take. I mean, it's just like 100% accurate. It'll ask you six questions. And brother, when you answer those six questions one way or the other, you know where you're at in your spiritual growth. Then there's, there's what I call the God test. Somebody says, well, I, 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 me and God got a great relationship. Oh, I love God. Uh, I mean, uh, you get up and you sing this great melodious song, you know, like those people in those Bible colleges, and you sit there and you think, wow, that, because you can hide behind singing. Hey, a great voice doesn't mean a great relationship with God. Talk to Frank Sinatra. And, and, and you can use your Bible on these. You can. I mean, I would encourage you to. But I'll tell you what. In the Bible, there are seven things that God loves. Do you know what those are? I mean, you can use your Bible at any time. Not right now, but I mean, I mean it's not a trick test where you've got to memorize them. The Bible says there are seven things that God hates. The Bible says there are seven things that God rejoices over. Bible says there's seven things that please God. Bible says that there's seven things that the Word of God does for you. Bible says there's seven things that the Holy Spirit of God does for you. Bible says there's seven things a Christian has to prove. You're going to tell me you have a relationship with God but you don't even know what He loves and what He hates? What makes Him happy? How do you know what's making you happy is what makes Him happy? How do you know what you're loving isn't what he hates, and what he hates is what you're loving? You see, it's all an illusion. Oh, I have a great relationship with God. Based on what? You know why people don't like me? Oh, let's talk about it for a moment. I'll just be honest with you. I know people don't like me. And I understand why. You know why they don't like me? Because I won't let them live in that illusion world that they live in. Yeah, people come to church here, they'll last a week. Sometimes they'll last half the service. They have the worst case of diarrhea, they got to go, but they got to go home to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I get it. My style of preaching doesn't placate people. And I'm not sure what placate means, but I heard somebody use it one time. It was a big time preacher, and I thought it was pretty, pretty powerful. Look, that book is plain. You know what? When you get out of fellowship with God and you don't do what's right and you need to get right with God, you don't have to flower up the prayer. You don't have to tell God of the flowers and all this stuff. He says, you know, you don't, you just, when you, when you got to get right with God, you just talk real plain to him. Do you know why? Because it's already plain to him. And my style of preaching goes right to where the heartbeat is. I mean, that's all I know to do. I'm not the kind of guy that is just going to get up here and, 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 just, and just pretend that you can, you can have a great relationship with God and not know anything about God. There are some things, if any man love God, the same is known of him. Love, real love, will always identify itself with the object. 
And you young Christians that I tell you don't worry about this, that needs to be your goal in life. You're here now. Learn, get these things. And I know most of you have those in your Bible, but I'm telling you, people don't, people don't want to be away. I am the cold bucket of water in your face. You're in a dream world. Oh, yeah, I love God. God loves me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll go to church with you in the morning. Yeah, I like churches. Churches are really nice. Oh, yeah, I love God. I, I sit down there. Danny's done singing. I get up, pick up my bucket of water. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get out of here. Let me put it into a perspective for you. Let me put it into a context. We go through our little trials and troubles mostly because of our own disobedience to God. Not for our stand, but I'll give you that. And in the face of that little adversity compared to the Bible, we fail. We quit. We get mad. We whine and we complain. Well, I've seen people who had sicknesses and had diseases that were ongoing and they never saw God getting the honor and glory out of it. All they saw was their whining and complaining. And I got a guy sitting outside that door today that I love with all my heart who's got terminal cancer that he wouldn't miss a church service. He throws up before he gets here. He throws up when he goes home. He's going through chemo. He's out on the street ministry when it's 100 degrees and the temperature. And you know what? In the face of adversity. And when Job went through what he went through and we contrasted that to our, our light affliction and all we can do is whine and complain and, and make excuses and, and for why we don't serve God. I have very little. I have very little. I got a guy over here that is blind who can't see. He can't drive. Unless it's foggy nights. He, he can't see. He can't drive. But he's out on that street every time. I've seen God people that God gave you two good eyes. You had razor sharp vision and you won't do anything for God. And you're always complaining about your light affliction. You're always complaining about your sickness or your disease or whatever you have. Job goes through everything that he goes through. And the Bible says in Job chapter, which is a thousand times worse than what you and I will ever go through. And Job 122 says, in all this. And losing his family, his house, his servants, his kids, his health, and all this. Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Our problem today with adversity, adversity that God could use in somebody else's life, our strength is small. We're weak. And it goes back to whatever we want to say or whatever illusion you want to live in. That verse stands as absolute infallible truth. We have no relationship with God because God is enough. After all that he went through, in the middle of sitting on that ash heap with his three friends, just beating him and beating him and beating him. In Job 13, 15, he looks up through the tears. He looks up through the tragedy. He looks up through the adversity. And he says, yet though he slay me, I will trust him. And all he had was God. Woo, look what we got. We got Christ in you, the hope of glory. He didn't. You got the perfect and complete word of God in your lap this morning. He didn't. You have a church, a support group. You have a prayer group. 
You have everything going for you. He didn't. You have a pastor you can call. You have people that you can rely on. He didn't. And with all that that we have, we still can't stand and face adversity. You know why? Because that stuff scraped away, that stuff taken away, that stuff all out of our world comes down to one thing. Your personal relationship with God this morning. Is he enough? Now there's some things you want to remember here. You need to see this. Somebody says, well, all the bad things in life are of the devil and all the good things in life are of God. Really? In chapter 1, verse 8, it was God that brought Job's name up. It wasn't the devil. The devil didn't come in and say, I'm going to attack Job today and you ain't going to do nothing about it. He came in and the Lord says, where you been? The devil says, oh, I've been walking up and down and checking things out down there. He says, have you? How's things going? Oh, pretty good. He said, God said, have you considered my servant Job? I wonder what we'll do in a day in heaven when the devil walks in and God's got something he wants to do through you and me. And he says, have you considered my servant Bob? I mean, your name's on the short list someplace. And the devil said, yeah, he ain't much. God said, well, he loves me. And he does what's right even when he doesn't have to. And then we see the next thing. And boy, this, if, if you just come and got this today and just leave with just getting this, this is worth coming for today. When the devil comes after you and me, I want you to notice chapter 1, verse 9, the devil will always attack your motive of why you do what you did. He won't attack what you did. He didn't attack Job on doing what was right. He attacked Job on the motive behind what Job did what was right. He said, well, why shouldn't he? You've given him everything. You take away all that he has, and he'll curse you to his face. When the devil attacks at the judgment seat, of, well, that is a great principle for the judgment seat of Christ. It won't be about what you did or what you didn't do. When the devil is going to nail you and you go through adversity, it ain't going to be about what you do or what you don't do. He's going to attack the motive by which you do what you do. Because motive is everything. You know what motive is? Attitude of heart. He says, take all of it away and he will curse you to his faith, just like God's people do today. You don't get your way in your health issue. You don't get your instance healing. You don't get your way in your business or this or that. You get mad at God. Why, God, why, God, are you putting me through this? Why am I going through this suffering? Why am I going through this? Why not you? I mean, how about a good contrast? All that when he went through you on the cross, and you can't bear a light affliction for him, and maybe let him get the honor and glory out of it for somebody else? Why, you selfish individual, you? I'll tell you another thing. The day of adversity will come to all of us. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You won't escape it. You may fail and you may fall and you may be weak in your strength, but it's coming your way. 
What I try to do here, what we try to do here on Thursday night, Sunday morning, and all that we do, one-on-one, whatever they have, is try to prepare you for it. How to get you to see it and understand that it is coming. Now, I'll tell you the next thing. When adversity comes into your life and you go through something, there will be people watching you to see if you handle it the way you really think a Christian ought to handle it. Romans 14, 7 said, No man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. You claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a child of God, and, and yet you let what you have take you out of what God wants to do in your life. You, you, you don't just, you don't let God use what you've got. You don't, let, you don't let God take the adversity that you're going through, no matter what it may be. And though you may be going through it, and it may be tough, I understand. I get it. But people are going to watch your life. They see the world fold up. They see the world curse God and die. They see the world do all of that stuff. And most of the time, that's what they see in God's people's lives. Because our, our strength is small. We don't have any strength. Somebody's always watching our lives. I'll tell you the next thing. The real proof of your life in Christ will not be when you're feeling better. Oh, I'm feeling better today. I'm back on top of things. Really? You need to learn how to be on top of things when you don't feel well. But that takes a relationship with God. The real proof of your life in Christ won't be when all is well, when you're doing good, but when your word is falling apart around you. Most of you don't know who this guy was, and I've told this story before, but it, it, I ought to tell it every six months just to never forget it. Uh, but years ago, I heard a guy by the name of, of Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley was a, was, a, was a really good preacher. He wasn't loud. He wasn't dynamic like you think of preaching. He had like four or five terminal diseases at the same time. He's dead now. And uh, he, when he, when he, when he got up to preach in the pulpit, he looked like he was already dead. I mean, he was ashen color. He was not in good health. And he was very slow moving. When he preached, he had to go back to his room. Didn't get to go out to eat. He had to lay back down. He was in bad shape. And but he had some of the greatest pearls of wisdom that he had learned going through his adversity. And this guy had four terminal diseases that was racking his body, and yet he preached almost two or three times a week. And we get somebody that's got just some issue in their life, you know, whatever and that, and it throws you out of everything that you're doing for God because you just can't do it. Talk to Manly Beasley when you get to heaven, will you? He said one time, and I never forgot this. Boy, it is so true. He was, he was great at, at, at stating the obvious in a way that was right in front of you, but you just never saw it, and then bring the spiritual application back. He was talking about He was talking about God meeting your needs. This is different. He was talking about God meeting your needs. And he asked a question. He says, when God created everything, what did he create first? Did he create air or did he create lungs? And everybody said, well, he created air. And then when he made Adam, Adam had lungs. He said, that's my point. You see, before Adam had a need, 
God created the air. And he said, before you have a need in your life, God's already created what he needs to have to fix it. That's deep. So simple, but that was him. He said one time he was speaking and he says, let me ask you a question. What do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And a lady down front raised her hand. She says, a lemon juice. Like she was going to get an award for that, you know. <laughs> he said, a lemon juice. And then he told her story. He says, you know, that's not true. He says, back home in Atlanta where he was from, we had a case here uh, last year where somebody was going into the grocery store and with a hypodermic needle was injecting a poison in the lemons. And once they did it, you couldn't see where it was and everything. And, it, they, and, and it, like six, seven people had died. And people were buying the lemons, going home and making lemonade, drinking and dying. And he said, so I asked the question, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon and you say lemon juice because that's what you should get? But it, the truth of the matter is when you squeeze a lemon, what's really on the inside comes out. He says, and when a Christian gets squeezed, what's really on the inside comes out. That's so profound. It isn't about when everything is going good in your life. It's about when everything is falling apart. When you're squeezed, what really comes out? Christian juice? <laughs> or your juice? And our text today says, Proverbs 24.10, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And, and Proverbs 21.10 and the book of Job, they, they go hand in hand. Now, doctrinally, as I said, they're both pictures of the Jew in the tribulation. But for me and you, in a practical way, it will be always go along with Proverbs 24.10. And it, it lays out five great truths that I want to leave you with today. And the first thing I want to tell you, as I've been hitting it all through this thing, is God alone will be enough for you. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says that his ways and his thoughts are higher than your ways and your thoughts. We looked at it last week. You know, there's three main areas of Christianity. There's the Bible, there's music, and there's preaching. And modern-day Christianity has failed in so many, so many ways. But the number one way that it has is that they, they have tried to bring God down to man's level. The three aspects of Christianity, the Bible, they say that you can understand English language in its most perfect, perfect form, so they want to put a degraded language in it and bring the Bible down to your level. You stop and think, you, you know, if there was a perfect language out there in a time period, which English was when the King James Bible was written, the English language had its purest form. Even Shakespeare was written during that time, and the language is called classic. It's called Elizabethan English because of the fact of the time period. You think that if somebody wanted to be pure in their language, that they would want a book that was pure in its writing. Well, see, we don't. We want to bring the Bible down to man's level, so we bring it down to the gutter language that we all love and understand and how we talk. Music. You know, music goes through a number of stages in history. It's one of the greatest studies that you'll take, four or five, you know, um, different periods of church history. Uh, the early period of church history was, was, was Mozart, Mozart and Bach. It, their, their, their music glorified God. 
and it was a great period of time. And then as it, time goes on, music degenerates, and the, the great hymns of the faith that we have in our, in our hymnal were all written during the Philadelphian church age when the King James Bible ran supreme. Now look at the music in the churches now. You can't tell it from the world. And preaching? Preaching now is not elevating the Word of God and rating Christ up. It's bringing Christ down that we're supposed to accept homosexuals and lesbians and everybody's okay. It's okay to social drink. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. I mean, that's, that's where it's all went. And it all comes down to the fact that this is why people fall. And I'm telling you, God should be enough in your life. Second thing, and this is very important. God will make you with the very things that the devil tries to break you with. God will make you with the very thing the devil tries to break you with. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness of me, saith the Lord. Uh, God will never let anybody hurt you. As long as you stay with the Word of God, stay with the truth of it, nothing or no one will ever harm you. I, I tell people that come to this church, they've been beat up in churches all over the place. And I tell them, I said, nobody will hurt you here. Nobody will hurt you here. You may hurt yourself, but nobody here will hurt you. Nobody will beat you up. Nobody will clobber you. Nobody will, you know, you're, 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 churches ought to be the safest place haven for people to come to heal and to get what they need. And unfortunately, they're the most messed up places. But I'm telling you, you know, when you stay with God in the Word of God, there's no weapon that will ever be formed against you that will prosper. You may have to get a licking and a kicking from it, but at the end of the day, you will win and they will lose. As I've said many, 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 many times, it's not in the Bible, but it's a true statement. You sit by the river long enough and the body of your enemy will float by if you stay with the book. And I have seen some float by. Third thing, you'll always be stronger and closer to God after the adversity than you were before the adversity. And this is true of Job. Job 42.12 says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. Job chapter 42, verse 10 says that Job got back double everything that he lost. And the Bible says not only that, but there's a resurrection. He gets his kids back. And the Bible says the longevity of life. He now sees his, what God took for him. He now sees his family to the fourth generation. That's unheard of. Now the fourth thing. Sometimes God has a message for us. He had a message for Job. And sometimes he'll use the devil as a delivery boy to give us the message. We are so weak and we are so frail and we are so small, we get caught up with the delivery boy and we never get the message. As a child of God, we need to know our limitations. As a Christian, I need to know the devil's limitations. And as a child of God, I need to know that God has no limitations. The fifth thing. 
Sometimes God will allow adversity to come into our lives for somebody else's sake. Somebody's going through exactly what you are and you, and you don't even know it. You're a Christian. They're struggling. They know you're struggling. So they watch and see how you handle it. Maybe God gave you what you got so when you go to the doctors and you go on for a long, prolonged time, the doctor can see how you're handling it and you get a good chance to witness to him that always whining and complaining about what your issues are. Maybe if you had the right attitude about it, you'd come to the place where you'd see that maybe a neighbor or maybe a friend of yours or maybe somebody uh, that you're associated with is watching how you handle it. And they're really asking themselves, do I really believe that Christianity is real? And maybe the only real answer they'll get is to see how you deal with it. Adversity is a tremendous witnessing tool. It's an incredible opportunity to show to others that what's really in your life, that God is enough. That, oh, you're struggling and you're going through some tough times and you're having some some real issues and some heartache. That God is enough. Coming up here in September, I'm going to have a guy coming through town who's going to preach. His name is Jerry Boffman. Jerry Boffman was a missionary to Canada. When I first came to Kansas City in 1976, uh, one of the first mission trips I took with high school kids. Penny, were you on that trip with me? Yeah. We went to St. Catharines up in, in Canada and did street work up there. Jerry really taught me a lot. Jerry's first wife was killed in a car accident. They were coming home from church one night guy coming down the other way was drunk, left center, hit their car head on, killed his wife. Jerry's remarried now and, you know, and has moved on with his life, but it was really a tough time for, for him for a long time. And he told me the story. I had him preach at a retreat one time, and him and I were off someplace, and I didn't ask him. He just told me the story, bald like a baby, but it, it, it was a very meaningful time for me when he told me this. He said, you know, that he really struggled with the death of his wife and he struggled with this guy who, uh, who had killed his wife. And he said, that just really bothered me to the point where he said, I, I just was so caught up in it and so angry. And he said, but he says, you know what? He said, I, I called at that, after it went all over and everything, you know, he says, I went to meet this guy. And he says, I sat down with him and he said, I want you to know that you have taken the most precious thing out of my life with my wife, and you killed her through your drunkenness. But he says, I want you to know, because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life and the difference that he has made, even though through the pain and the tears and the heartache that I'm feeling, I want you to know that I love you and I pray for you, and Jesus Christ will save your soul if you'll ask him to. I've never forgotten that. And I thought to myself, and that's why I want guys like him to come and preach. He taught me one of the greatest lessons in winning people to Christ one time. We were going door to door, knocking on doors in St. Catharines, which is Catholic Canada. And I was Jerry, and we were walking down here, and there was a, we were passing out literature. He was starting a church right there in the neighborhood, you know. And uh, I'm with Jerry, and there was a guy up here who's digging his bushes out, you know, with a hoe or a shovel. 
And I'm thinking to myself, no, this guy is not going to want to listen to us. He's got, you know what Jerry did? He walked over and he says, hey, have a seat there. Give me that shovel. And he started digging for the guy while he was telling the guy about his church. He understood that if you want to get into somebody's world and you want them to see what you have is real, then be real. Don't be this plastic Christian. Don't be this plastic pastor. God is enough. Giving God the freedom in our lives to do whatever he wants to do to use us and us being okay with that because of the relationship that we have with him. Job said it. Yet though he slay me, will I trust him? Now this is what God's wisdom and understanding will do for you. This is how when I say I want to make you better, I don't have any formula, magic, potion. It's giving you these principles, working with you, helping you, being there for you, taking you where you're at, discipling you, giving you what you need, giving you the ability to see all of this and to, to live above it. Any adversity will not go any farther than God allows it to go. In chapter 1, he says, if you considered my servant Job, he says, yeah, he ain't much. He says, you take all that you have for him, and he will curse you in his face. You know what God said? He said, okay, you can take all that he has, but you can't touch him. The devil came down and took all that he had, but the devil couldn't touch his body if he stayed up all night and tried to do it. In chapter 2, the devil comes back. They have a similar conversation. And this time the devil says, you, uh, you touch his body and he'll curse you to his face. God says, okay, you can touch his body. Devil starts to go out the door, but he says, you can't kill him. And the devil couldn't have killed Job if he wanted to. You know why? Because when God sets the limitations of your adversity, they're set. And when you know that and you trust in God because of your relationship with him, you can rest in that. The devil could never move outside those parameters. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, that the devil was created for a purpose. God had a purpose for creating him. And a child of God with wisdom and understanding, he'll know that purpose. The devil's purpose and God's purpose will be one of the great contrasts of the Bible that you ever study, seeing what the devil does and what God does. Light versus darkness, good versus evil, the world versus Christianity, the NIV versus the King James Bible the true Christianity and the phony Christianity, the church of the open door, the church of the closed door, seeing and identifying what is real and what is phony. But God will use it to get the honor and glory from it through you. Whatever adversity we go through, whatever happens, I can't think of Job without thinking that that thing happened back in Abraham's time, probably around, what, 1900 B.C.? And for 1,900 years up this side and 1,900 years up the other side of the New Testament, how God has got the honor and glory out of that event that took place so many hundreds of years ago. You know what? God will allow you to go through what we go through. He'll allow me to go through with you. And if we get the right mindset about it, God will not only make you better, God will not make you stronger. God will use it in somebody else's life. But ultimately, praise the Lord, God will get the honor and glory out of it. But too many times we complain, we whine, and we want all the honor and glory for ourselves. Look at me. 
look what I'm going through. Never one time was, yeah, I'm going through some things, but it never compared to what he went through with me on the cross. You know why? Because you have no relationship, that's why. It's phony. It's an illusion. It isn't real. 